This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Right now, we've got global cases passing, surpassing 131.3 million, deaths exceeding 2.8 million, and vaccines, more than 658 million shots have been given around the globe. So let's get our daily check. Back with us is Dr. Peter Alperin, Vice President at Doximity, which is a digital professional medical network for physicians. He joins us uh, again on the phone in San Francisco, where he is in private practice. Dr. Alperin, nice to have you here with Tib and myself. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for asking. Well, tell me what it, what you're seeing when it comes to uh, COVID specifically, the cases that you're seeing, uh, the kind of numbers you're seeing, and what you're seeing when it comes to uh, vaccine and, and it really being rolled out to more and more people. Yeah, so uh, here in California and specifically in Northern California, um, we've been able to really get going on the vaccine rollout. We've seen, you know, certainly in San Francisco, over 20% of San Francisco residents are now completely vaccinated. That means they've had two doses and are, you know, are uh, on their way. Uh, so doing well that with that way. And 43% of all eligible adults have had at least one dose. Um, we've seen case rates come down significantly. In January, of course, we were in the 300s per day, um, and now we're um, down into the uh, you know 30s, 30s to 36 cases per day. So really doing well, and I think you know we're seeing all around the ba- different counties in the Bay Area the ability for people who want to get uh, vaccinated if they're diligent to be able to find a find an appointment. What about those people who don't necessarily want to be vaccinated, but but should be vaccinated? I got my own first dose on Saturday. I'm really happy about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I went to a drugstore that's participating here in New York State. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist, so I ask questions. And, and the guy checking me in, I was talking to him, and I asked him if he'd gotten his shot yet. And he said, no, I'm, I'm actually skeptical about it. Uh, and this is the guy checking me in to get my vaccine <laughs> at the pharmacy. Yeah, that's what you're hearing, some some nervous laughter there. So, you know, the, of course, the health health authorities, physicians, the CDC, all the major institutions, you know, are strongly recommending vaccination. But it's still, uh, you know, it's still a struggle. Um, I think it's just we need to continue with persistent messaging and continue with, um, you know, the, the clear message that the vaccine is going to help, you know, going to help save lives and help put an end to this pandemic and bring herd immunity to the United States. Um, but it's not an easy task. And people get their information in different ways. You know, what we're seeing on Doximity, for instance, is um, a lot of conversation around using alternative um, uh, ways of getting that information out. For instance, um, there was a recent uh, a recent, I think, a study was I saw it on NPR where they talked about um, using barbershops as, as an opportunity to help reach a different different communities because those are the areas where people congregate. So I think it's it's really important that people um, you know get information from all the different places that they uh, that they congregate. Well, Dr. Alpin, what is it that people have the most questions about, or what is it that they don't understand? We had a great story recently in Bloomberg Business Week. Um, this had to do with pregnant women specifically, and just on social media, how much disinformation is out there, and that when 
the medical community or the scientific community comes on to talk about a vaccine, it's very scientific in terms of the words that are being used, and it's not yeah. really warm and fuzzy. So what is it that people are so concerned? Because I remember months ago, you even talking about doctors who were hesitant about taking the vaccine. So, you know, I think it's a couple things, but I mean, I think first and foremost, it's just really that people are bombarded with different types of information and that people don't always get their information from places that I think are as reputable as others. Um, you know, for instance, one of the best things you can do if you have the, if you have a doctor is to talk to your doctor about it. Um, your doctor will be able to give you that, that good information. And if you, um, you know, are afraid to go into the office, this is a place where something like telemedicine can really play a role. So you can have that conversation with the patient to tell them what are the different things and really suss out what it is that they're afraid of. Because people are concerned about different things, and sometimes you really just have to sit down and do it the old-fashioned way and talk to the patient. It's funny you say it the old-fashioned way because it's telemedicine is, is nothing there's nothing old-fashioned about it, right? But it is old-fashioned talking to the talking to the doctor, I guess you could say. So I, I do wonder, telemedicine over the last year has grown in popularity, obviously, because people have not been going into the doctor in the traditional way. But I'm wondering what it looks like on the other side of the pandemic. When we are all vaccinated, is tele telemedicine, is it, is it here to stay? Or is it like a kind of a hybrid approach like we're going to see with, with workplaces? Yeah, I think it's exactly that. It's going to be a hybrid approach. Are we going to have a situation where we did back in the height of the pandemic in April, May, and June, uh, where, you know, doctor's offices, many were closed, and it was difficult to get in to see anybody for anything that wasn't emergent? No. But I do think what you're going to see is um, this hybrid approach where a great many visits that used to be done in person are going to be done um, over telehealth. And it's something that uh, I think is a real good thing for healthcare. It will allow people to be able to have a much, much better access, more convenient. Um, people won't have to take time off work. And if you're an hourly worker, that's a really big deal. So you have to go to the doctor. You have to go into the office all for a 15-minute visit when, in fact, maybe you can just do that over the phone um, or through your computer. And that's why, you know, at Doximity, we've, we've built a platform to really help with that. Well, sounds good. I mean, I actually, I agree with Tim, too, and I agree with you that, you know, we can see kind of a mixture of this and giving a lot of accessibility, especially in maybe more rural communities where it's not so easy to tap into uh, the medical network. Um, Dr. Alperin, thank you so much. Be well, stay safe. Dr. Peter Alpin, he's vice president at Doximity, uh, a digital professional medical network for physicians, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. How do you feel after your first shot? You know, I got to tell you, I had a not great reaction, <gasps> but only in the sense of just feeling really tired. Yeah. So all the normal stuff, you know, just really lethargic yesterday. Uh, but hey, if it means it's working, I'm happy. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, no doubt about it. Tim and I were talking about this. CEOs, they cannot stay on society's sidelines anymore. And that is what Bloomberg Opinion columnist Joe Nocera writes about. He's also a Bloomberg Business Week regular. He notes that today's corporate chiefs no longer closely aligned with the Republican Party, and they face a lot of pressure to wield their considerable influence on a lot of important issues. Joe is with us on the phone in New York City. Joe, of course, also writer and host of the wildly popular podcast, The Shrink Next Door, which Tim, along with his wife, recently binged on big time. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Also with us is Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Axis Line in Brooklyn. So Joel, let's kick it off. Uh, I feel like the last year we have seen a lot of CEOs. There's been a lot of pressure on them to talk about some very important issues. Yeah, I think right. one of the, the 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 themes. Oh, that was to me first, Joe. I, I know our, <laughs> our names sound so similar. I'll, I'll, I'll kick to you, you in a second. 
you know, I, I think just to put this on a on a platter for for Joe, though, you know, I think the th the change that we've seen this year is one from CEOs being able to to silently stay on the sidelines, benefit from things like corporate tax rate cuts, and the social issues that are confronting um, society. Um, are are beginning to change their ability to do so. So, so Joe, over to you. What what do you think's changed, Joe? Thanks for the platter there, J Webb. Uh, <laughs> it's a big. I prefer one. J Dub. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, one of the things that changed is that the Republican Party has become much more extreme, and so the sort of moderate Republican that corporate executives often personify and the people that they have kinship with in Congress are, are really becoming a rare species. And so you get things like, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and, and George Floyd and, and now the most recent one, uh, you know, with the voting rights bill, it, 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 you, CEOs don't feel like they have any choice. There being, there, there's no counterpart uh, pushing against with that has the same clout as corporations. And secondly, and this is, do not underestimate this, the employee base wants the CEO and wants the company to stand for these things. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hugely important in terms of recruiting, in terms of how you position yourself with your employees. Um, and, you know... African-American employees, but also white employees, they, they're in favor of these things and they want their companies to push back against some of these extremist measures. Does it start to go further than statements, than strongly worded statements? Does it start to go with investment or, or lack thereof in certain places in response to bills such as these? Well, go back to North Carolina. Okay, a few years ago, when they had the uh, the bathroom bill, you know, where you had to could only go to the bathroom, public bathroom, uh, with your with the sex of your uh, I, I, on your birth certificate. So it was an anti-trans bill. Um, there was a boycott. Uh, uh, companies stopped having conferences there. Um, the NCAA uh, pulled out. Of, and and eventually, after North Carolina was both embarrassed and lost a bunch of money, they withdrew, the, bill, the bill was withdrawn. So you've already got Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game from Atlanta. Now, you know, some congressmen have pushed back on that, but in truth, the corporations have clout here. Um, is Coca-Cola going to move its headquarters? Probably not. But there are certainly a lot of things corporations can do to inflict a little plank pain on Georgia in terms of conferences, in terms of, you know, uh, using Delta Airlines and so on. So you could you definitely could see corporations putting pressure uh, on Georgia and on the other states, too. Already, American Airlines uh, has come out against the, the voting rights bill that's up in Texas. But what's interesting, Joe, is that initially, like, some of those big companies in Atlanta and Georgia, they knew this was coming. It wasn't a surprise, but didn't stop it before it was passed. It wasn't until afterwards where there was a lot of pressure. So I do wonder, right. you know, what is it? Is it just that when they're finally forced to, that they make a, they make a stand? Well, you know, what does it mean to be forced to? I mean, I think, mm. uh, uh, I think that black, these black CEOs who put together the letter uh, of protest 
Uh, and then, you know, Ken Chenault, uh, formerly of American Express, uh, mm-hmm. and Ken Fraser of Merck, they know a lot of these guys. And they get on the phone with Ed Bastian of Delta and say, you know, what are you thinking? You know, we need you. We need Delta. And, and I think guys like Bastian are very susceptible to that, and, and they want to be on the right side. And, and what Fraser and Chenault and the others are saying is, you know, you want to be on the right side of history? You know, you want to be like uh, Woodruff and Coca-Cola in 1964 with the Martin Luther King uh, uh, dinner where, where, where he threatened to have Coke leave if, if they didn't, if, if businessmen didn't go to that dinner. You want to be on the right side of history, mm-hmm. you need to be with us. And I think that's a powerful argument. You know, Joe, uh, there is a, uh, an aside that you have in your story that really caught my attention, and I thought it was sort of a uniquely um, Bloomberg angle, which is that, and you, you um, spoke with uh, a Wharton professor about this, um, this idea that activist investors are actually the ones that have sort of paved the way for the conversation that we're seeing now. And, and I'm wondering, you know, we, we talk about ESG a lot and, and what activist investors can accomplish and, and I'm curious, like, how, how much of Wall Street can we credit for, a, 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 you know, ability to, to affect corporate change? Well, I don't, think, I don't think Wall Street spends a lot of time worrying about ESG. But what, what, uh, what the act, corporate activists have done is shown, is shown basically the outside world that companies can be pressured, that companies can be forced to change, that, uh, you know, it's a little different because the corporate activists want the stock to go up, but they, but the lesson I think has come through loud and clear. And, and the idea that corporations can stay on the sidelines anymore. I mean, it's just, it's just not there. So what's your takeaway then from all of this? Cause I do feel like we've heard from a lot of CEOs, especially as one started stepping out in this past year, um, you know, money always talks, you know, ultimately. Right. So just got about 30 seconds. You're, you're kind okay, of, so, yeah. right. So I, here's what I say. Here's what I think the big test is. The big test is whether companies and their PACs will continue to refuse to fund mm-hmm. the, uh, the Republicans who, who, who denied uh, that President Biden had won the election. There's 140 of them in the House and a handful in the Senate. And, and so many companies have said we're not going to contribute to them anymore. Well, two years is a long time. So let's see uh, whether right. they stick to their guns. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because we saw after the riots how people were kind of slowing down or stopping their donations. But let's see if it lasts in the long t- t- uh, longer term. Um, Joe Nacera, we always love when we get some time with you. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Joe Nacera, a Bloomberg Businessweek regular, along with uh, Joel Weber. <laughs> This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. And Bloomberg Business Week, it is brought to you by SEI with an operating platform designed to support all major asset classes, diverse strategies, and investment vehicles. SEI is redefining wealth management. Learn more at seic.com slash IMS. Well, one of the big stories we're watching this week is the political and public talk surrounding President Biden's two and a quarter trillion dollar infrastructure plan. Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown writes about the plan and how that massive infrastructure spend is really part of the president's new plan for dealing with China. I love this think on this story. Andy joins us uh, once again on the phone in New York City. So, Andy, um, talk to us about what you wrote about in your weekly column. 
Yeah, so it just seemed to me that for so long, the United States has been playing entirely the wrong game against China. So, you know, having labeled China a competitor, a rival, even an adversary, the, the, the brunt of the effort has been trying to trip China up, right, to hold China's advance back, to block the advance of this competitor. And it kind of feels so defensive, so reactive. Um, and the rest of the world, by the way, doesn't really go along with this. You know, most other countries want China to succeed so that they can enjoy the spoils of success. And what this Biden infrastructure plan does, it flips all this around. Everybody knows that America plays the best game, a, a, a game of offense, right? That's, that's, that's what America does best. It doesn't do defense best. This infrastructure program, $2.3 trillion, as you say, to fix road, build airports, build networks, um, sort of a, an infrastructure fit for the, for, the, for the 21st century, kind of feels like America is now moving in the right direction. It feels positive. It feels forward-looking, right? The future is in our own hands type thing. And I, to me, it just changes the game, I mean, and, and puts America in... in uh, for the first time, I think, in a, in, a, in a really strong position to compete against China. Andy, one challenge, though, is that uh, certainly how how Democrats are positioning it. But, you know, on the Sunday shows yesterday, Republican after Republican pushing back on this infrastructure plan, talking about how there isn't much actual infrastructure in it, despite the fact that it does include 5G and broadband and the like. Yeah, well, you know, look, to me, this shows that uh, people who argue against this just don't get how dire the situation of infrastructure is, perhaps. Uh, I mean, I lived in China for the last 20 years uh, and saw the infrastructure that they piled in, you know, starting with their first high-speed rail line, which was in preparation for the 2008 Olympics, just a very short line between Beijing and Tianjin, the port. And within 10 years... You know, China had a high-speed rail network that is now bigger than the, that was bigger than the rest of the world combined, and they're just about to add another 30% to its length. And people in China looking at that infrastructure going in had this visual cue, this visual understanding that their economy was getting better and better all the time. They could feel it. They could see it. You know, they could see all this going in. And sometimes I, have, I just have an impression that people uh, in the United States are looking at this crumbling infrastructure, and they're not getting how how you know how this is really corroding the the, the heart of, of of america's competitiveness i'm looking out right now over a section of the brooklyn queens expressway which in four years time is going to have bits ch- uh, uh, falling off it and, and may have to close and it's like 200 carries 200,000 cars a year all of these problems have been have been boiling for so long and politicians have done nothing about it so it doesn't kind of surprise me to hear this sort of pushback to the biden plan to be very frank well what's interesting too you know andy and you you write in your column, you say the Trump administration had virtually nothing to show for its all-out tariff war with Beijing. So we've been in a battle, and we've been doing it through tariffs. But what do we have to show for it? Like, And you also talk about how we are constantly blaming China for what ails us in the United States. The Biden plan, and I'm not trying to be political, but it's a step to invest in the country's future rather than point fingers or use something like tariffs, which haven't really done anything for us. 
Yeah, so so the Trump administration gave this its best shot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and they put what is it, twenty five percent tariffs on just about everything that 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 China produces, um, and you know, uh, China has actually in that time uh, has expanded its global share of of, of trade, right? Um, the the trade surplus, uh, China's trade surplus with the United States is bigger than it ever has been. So really, that piece didn't work. The most successful part actually of the Trump's economic agenda against China was on the tech side, denying China uh, technology. And look, that's definitely got to be part of the strategy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, China does represent a security threat to the United States. Uh, we, we, we talk a lot about China's human rights abuses, and we, you know, and, 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 and the way that it, it's, it's selling this surveillance technology all over the world and, and the tech that it's exporting is imbued with Chinese authoritarian values. All this is true. Uh, and that definitely definitely should be part of the effort. But the real, the, 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 the real game changer is going to be America fixing itself. That's going to give U.S., by the way, the credibility it needs to build the international coalitions, you know, the democratic coalitions that President Biden keeps talking about to stand up to China. First of all, it needs that domestic credibility. We're getting our political system in order. We're getting our economy in order, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're building for the future. Uh, join us on this great crusade. If Indeed, that's what it is they're launching. So, Andy, it raises the question if, if you if talking about China in the sense of this infrastructure plan is the right way for Democrats to, to sell this to Republicans, because there is some agreement on taking on China. And indeed, the third sentence of the fact sheet about the American jobs plan that was released on March 31st, it has the word China in it. And it mentions China five times in two dozen pages here. Is that the right way to get uh, Republicans and Democrats to see the, to see the, to see the same way? Well, I, I mean, I think I think very deliberately that's that's the way the Biden administration has been selling it, because it is the one issue on which Democrats and Republicans uh, can agree, you know, that, that China is a threat and uh, and and needs to be countered. But look, you know, uh, uh, it, it's not really it's sh- this should not be such a tough sell. China now is already putting in. 5G networks, right? And these networks are powering all the industries of the future. And if the U.S. doesn't have a 5G network, you know, the next Google, the next Facebook, the next, you know, all the big tech giants uh, of the future are going to be Chinese, not American. You know, is is, is that what America wants? Right. And I love how you say that China, you know, uh, what President Biden is looking to do, you know, China isn't planning for this. So this could really throw them off course. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Tesla shares, uh, as we've been hearing, they are rallying today. They're up uh, 6.3% as we speak, still pretty flat for the year overall. This is the company's estimate smashing deliveries of electric vehicles in the first quarter suggest that Elon Musk making some bets on China and Europe that they are starting to pay off. So let's get into it. Uh, Bloomberg technology reporter and all things Tesla. Uh, she keeps an eye on it for us here at Bloomberg. Dana Hall, she's joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Dana, nice to have you back with us. So tell us about this quarter. Yeah, so I think this was just a classic kind of expectations game. Uh, you know, in January, the CFO of Tesla, Zachary Kirkhorn, really downplayed the first quarter. He talked about the semiconductor shortage, which is plaguing the auto industry as a whole. He warned about, you know, backups at ports. He made it clear that they're transitioning to a new version of the S and the X and that production would be really low. So Wall Street was not expecting this kind of quarter at all. And um, so it was that classic thing where, like, 
you know, all the analysts had low estimates, then Tesla comes in way above, and now you're seeing the shares rally as a result. So we've been managed, is what you're saying. <laughs> I, I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, the first yeah. quarter is typically slow for the auto industry as a whole, and certainly Tesla has had previous first quarters where they really bombed. So the fact that this was their strongest first quarter ever, um, and that it, and that they actually grew sales over the fourth quarter was a big thing. Now, you are seeing a lot of skeptics and bears point out that it wasn't really that much growth. It was only 2%. Given that they have two plants now, shouldn't the growth be more than that? But given all the other sort of tailwinds in the economy with, you know, coming out of the coronavirus and the and the um, semiconductor shortage, I mean, this is a strong quarter for them, and it bodes well for the rest of the year. So, Dana, what do we know about geographically where these cars were sold and, and, and who bought them? Well, we really don't know very much. I mean, Tesla releases global deliveries, and that's it. Like, they don't they don't tell you where they were sold. But if you saw Elon Musk's tweet today, he sort of gave a shout-out to Tesla China. And we know that the U.S. and China have typically been the strongest markets. I think it's a fair assumption that China helped quite a bit. Um, you know, here in the U.S., a lot of customers are kind of waiting to see if President Biden might restore the federal tax credit for electric vehicles. So... There's a sense that, you know, there's a hangback in the U.S. while markets in China and Europe are stronger. So what I keep wondering, though, Dana, and you know this company well, and you watch, you know, the competitors that are out there, Volkswagen, all of, you know, the big auto companies are finally like, okay, we're finally doing it. We're going after the EV market. Does Elon have to be worried? And does he have to be worried about China specifically, which is such an important market, especially when we know President Xi wants to develop all of those domestic EV makers? I mean, there's certainly more competition for, I mean, there's certainly more competition in that there are now more electric vehicle offerings. But I think that, you know, you have to sort of think about the auto market as a pie. Right now, electric vehicles are a very small share of that pie. And the goal of everyone is to kind of grow that electric share. And so, it's you know, I feel like the focus on the competition is, is a little bit off base because the real competition is between electric vehicles and ICE cars. If you mm-hmm. can get someone who's driving a gas-powered car to buy electric, that is the goal. And so, like, Tesla has always said that they welcome the competition because there's more offerings for everybody. And we've seen that the competition is now here, but, like, Tesla is still selling cars. They haven't reached this demand cliff that we keep hear- hearing about. Um, I mean... So, yeah, they, they still, I mean, they obviously face competitive threats, but it's like they have pushed the industry into going electric, which is a good thing. Yeah, um, And, it, and uh, you know, and now people can really compare us and shop. You can, you, can, you can choose among many electric bottles and what is right, what is right for your price range, for your range needs. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's overall a good thing. I just, I just sort of feel like we need to think about growing the, the pie Growing the, growing the electric share of the pie versus just making it this fight between the electric models. Hey, Deanna, now that the company has released those delivery figures for the quarter, what is the, the next figure that investors are going to be keeping an eye on? What else moves the company's stock? So I think the big, so, you know, the deliveries are a big part of the earnings report, which will come either later this month or early next. And I think the big question is going to be about margins because, hmm. This quarter, they did not deliver any, I mean, well, they sold, they delivered about 2,000 S and Xs, which are sort of older inventory models. They, they did not deliver any of the newly refreshed S and Xs. So this is overwhelmingly free and Y, which have much lower gross margins. Um, 
So that, that'll be a question for investors. But I mean, I feel like, you know, investors have a lot of questions. They want updates on the Gigafactory being built in Texas and Berlin. They want to know about auto bidder. They want to know about full self-driving. They want to know about the insurance. I mean, you know, Tesla has all of these kind of ancillary things that it's getting into. Um, they want updates on the Cybertruck. So I think it'll be a really interesting call in terms of the questions that the company gets. Yeah, it does feel like it's gearing up to be... Um an interesting year, too, for the industry overall, the EV industry, but certainly Tesla once again. Hey, Dana, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Dana Hull, she's technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone, as you've been hearing, uh, risk on trade, no doubt about it. We've got uh, equities, those major equity averages, just coming off their best levels of the session, but nonetheless up more than 1% on the Dow, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ. Let's get to it with Prabha Ram. She is Portfolio Manager at American Century Investments. They have $220 billion in assets under management. Her fund, though, is about $28 billion. She helps manage it. It's the American Century-focused dynamic growth fund. Check it out because it's up 96% in the past 12 months, has returned on average more than 28% annually over the past five years, putting it in the 98th percentile, according to Bloomberg data. She's back with us on the phone in New York City. Prabha, good to have you here with us. Dave Wilson was just talking about some of those big tech names that have once again propelled us, the Fab Five, whether it's Facebook, Amazon, and the like, propelling us to another record uh, on the S&P 500. How do you see the market, especially when it comes to some of those more innovative companies and those faster growing companies? Yeah, thank you, Carol, um, for having me. And, you know, I Here's what um, we see, right? So obviously the innovative companies have just an enormous track record, right? So if you just, I mean, just forget today, but if you can look back in the last decade, 2011 through 2020, um, the tech winners, if you take the top 10 tech winners, um, they actually doubled their margins. And if you look at their cash flow return on investments, that went from 14 times to 21 times. So obviously, you know, um, these names uh, continue to gain momentum because, uh, you know, they've proven their success, the success of their business models, um, not just the high growth and the network effects, but also the profitability that comes with it. And so they've gained some of the mojo, if you will, that, uh, you know, that has accrued to them. But, you know, um, as a growth investor, you know, I'm not... Um, today is a good day, and so we'll take we'll take mm-hmm. them as they come. Yeah, Tesla is the top holding uh, in the fund, eight uh, percent of the the fund's holdings. Tesla up four point five percent today on those good delivery figures. Given that Tesla has grown to be such a large portion of the fund, do you do you consider trimming it at all? Is have you done that? Yes. So Tim, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a very disciplined approach to risk management. In fact, the firm American Century, you know, among institutional investors is known for its risk management chops, um, you know, over and above the stock picking, um, which is, you know, which is what we do. So uh, basically we have limits 
on what percent of active risk one security can be. So, uh, you know, um, we don't get carried away, um, even though there are huge addressable markets and the company is executing. So, yes, we have, uh, to answer your question directly, we have trimmed Tesla multiple times uh, just because it has gotten big. We still believe in the innovation story. We still believe that electric vehicles are the future, and Tesla has an incredible lead. We've talked about it in the past, um, not just in terms of you know getting the electric vehicles, but having battery production at scale, uh, and just innovating on design over and over again, and also having the data to back it up with a billion real-world miles. So uh, we are excited about the company, but do you know watch our weights because. Uh, you know, the risk management aspects of it, you know, um, confine us to a certain percent of active risk for any one particular security. Right. So it has to do with exposure. Hey, talk about some of the names that you like. Chegg, C-H-G-G is the ticker. And this is an online educational platform. Tell us about this one and why you like it. I mean, the PE is more than 800. Is that right? So, um, you know, and again, you know, Carol, I would, um, you know, advise you on some of these names to look at how early in the growth cycle these names are versus mm-hmm. the addressable market. So just to give you, um, you know, most of us that have children at home, you know, that have been, you know, um, quote unquote, homeschooling with a Zoom education can relate to this. So what Chegg is, is a direct to student. It's an online on demand education platform um, where, you know, their objective, they call it is to master and advance. And I'm going to quote the CEO, uh, Don Rosenzweig, on this. And he says, getting students unstuck. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure we can all relate to getting stuck on a platform, right? So Uh this is one we like quite a bit because if you look at the statistics here, it's actually staggeringly depressing, (laughs) unfortunately, because um, let me give you a few numbers here. The average college student um, is not your, you know, is... um, um, a bushy-eyed 18-year-old, but is actually 25 years old. One in four of them has a child. 40% are already employed as they're trying to get a college degree. In fact, if you look at the profile of an average online student, it's a 30-year woman juggling an education, a job, and a child. So these people need help. And if you look at the cost of a college education, um, I don't have to tell you this, one6 and then student debt that needs to be repaid. So this is where Check comes in because what it is is an online on-demand platform. So, and basically what they have is this massive database of questions, you know, that have been answered by experts in a step-by-step fashion. And typically in STEM, that's sixty percent of their business. They do have other, um, you know, other subjects as well. Okay. So if you think about it, you know, that's massive network effects, right? right. Fifty-three million. And, um, and of that, a quarter of them coming from outside the U.S. as well. So, All right. Yeah. Probably we've got to run. Uh, next time we'll leave some more time, though, because I know you've got other names. That stock uh, was on quite a tear last year, up about 138%. Prabharam, co-portfolio manager at American Century Investments, joining us. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.